We want to progress in our own joy in the faith as we read through Philippians. And this morning we're going to be looking at verses 2, or excuse me, chapter 2, 1 through 4. And he is going to be mentioning a way of thinking and a posture of heart. That if you, if you have this way of thinking and this posture of heart and you're growing in it, it can strengthen your marriage. It can actually bring a measure of healing into your marriage as well. It's, it's a way of thinking and it's a posture of heart that if you have it and you're growing in it, uh, Jim Collins, an award-winning author, has wrote about all the successful businesses and how they become successful. He'll say that if you have this posture of heart, if you have this mindset, uh, you are capable of being one of the best leaders out there in your business or wherever you are. It's a way of thinking and a posture of heart that if you're growing in it, it's actually able to begin to slowly quiet the internal noise of your heart. It's a way of thinking and a posture of heart that if you have it and you're growing in it, can actually enable you to have a significant impact in the lives of those around you, whether that be a family that's around you, spouse, kids, classmates, roommates, people that you work with, you can have a significant impact in their lives if this is how you think in the posture of your heart. It's a way of thinking in a posture of heart that actually makes you not only willing to serve others if the opportunity comes along, but actually wanting to serve others. What is it? It's humility. And Paul's going to talk about humility here in this text in such a way that humility brings about a kind of relational harmony that I would say is, is kind of when it comes to an image similar to a symphony. If you've ever listened to a symphony, you have all kinds of people as individuals, and they're there, and some of them have uh, uh, stringed instruments like violins and cellos, and others of them have wind instruments like clarinets and flutes and other things like that. Uh, there's percussion. There's all kinds of different areas of this symphony. And they're not there to simply play on their own. They're there to play a common piece of music for the enjoyment of all who come to listen as they play together. And Paul is going to say, and our theme this morning is that gospel humility is key for relational harmony. That gospel humility is key for relational harmony. And when as individuals and as a church, we're growing in this way of thinking, in this posture of heart of humility, Paul will say those around you can hear the harmony of the gospel. Uh, so let's stand to hear God's word. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. 
let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The reading of God's word which he has given to you because he loves you and he wants you to know him. Let's pray. Father, even as we read this passage on humility, we acknowledge our need for it and that only you can give it. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask for you to work that humility in our hearts, even as this morning we look to the one who humbled himself to the point of death on our behalf, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want to look this morning, as we understand this theme of gospel humility leads to relational harmony. The first thing I want to look at is gospel humility. And especially the gospel aspect of this humility, how this humility is rooted in God's grace to us, to me and to you, and it only comes through Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel. You'll notice how Paul starts out in verse 1. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, and he says that multiple times. He uses the language of if there is this, if there is this. I'll say that's a fancy way in the language that they used back then of actually not questioning if something was actually true, but actually confident because it really was true. In other words, Paul is saying, because there is encouragement in Christ, because there is comfort from love, because there is all of these things. Now notice the first thing that he mentions with confidence there's any encouragement in Christ. One of the things that he's going to do is, is to show that amongst the Christians in Philippi and amongst the, the Christians here in Oconee County, here at Oconee Fellowship, amongst all the differences that we have from each other, some superficial, others fairly substantial, here's some things that you have in common with other believers in Jesus Christ. And one of those things that you have in common is encouragement in Christ. Now, what Paul is understanding here and teaching to the Philippians and to us here this morning is that you, you live in a real world where you can experience real discouragement for a variety of very real reasons. Whether it be something that you've walked through this week, something that you walked through in a season of these past few months, something that you're facing relationally, something that you're facing circumstantially. He knows that real discouragement can take root in the believer's heart. And to that, Paul says, do you know what you have in common with other believers in those moments, in those seasons of discouragement? From God himself through Christ, you have encouragement. You have encouragement in Christ. His promises, his presence his provisions of grace, all of those things for your encouragement you have in common with others. Next, he mentions very confidently something else that we have together in common with others. He says not only if there's any encouragement in Christ in verse 1, but also if there's any comfort from love. Every time that Paul mentions something here that we have in common, it's something that comes through Christ to you. And now he says comfort from his love. And he's saying, listen, I know that you live in a real world of sadness and sorrow and tears and grieving. 
And one of the things that we have in the gospel is not only the forgiveness of sins that's granted to us fully and freely in Christ, but you also have the comfort of His love. That in those moments of sorrow and sadness and tears and grief, God Himself through Christ wants to draw near and comfort you. I love the image that Zephaniah gives, one of the, the minor prophets in the Old Testament. Zephaniah 3.17 talks about how our God is mighty to save. And that when He draws near to you, one of the things it says that He will do is that He will quiet you with His love. I mean, if you've ever been in one of those seasons where it's so sad, so filled with sorrow, so grieving that you, you just almost lose control and outwardly you're, you're making noise and it's just hard inside and outside and you're just convulsing and all of a sudden you feel His presence draw near and you become quiet. You were convulsing, but now your heart is quiet. That's what Zephaniah says, that when this God draws near, He quiets you with His love. Paul's saying something similar here, that in those seasons, in those moments that are so deep and profound, not only do you have encouragement in Christ, but you have comfort from his love. And you have that in common together with anyone else who names the name of Christ, that in those seasons you have a Savior who will draw near and comfort you. He also says, as he moves on in verse 1, he says, if there's any participation in the Spirit... Now, it wasn't just true in Philippi. It's also true in our day that there were some in Philippi that had status and others that didn't have status. There are others that had a significant amount of possessions and others who didn't have that much. Uh, some that had a lot of property, maybe others that had a lot of different things, and there are others that did not have those things. And yet in Philippi, you see them all coming together to worship this God because they all do possess the Holy Spirit. They might have different lives. What they have in common is that they have the same Spirit living in them that they participate in together. And so Paul is saying, listen, Philippians, I know there's, there's so much among you that makes you different from each other. And sometimes those things can cause friction and tension and division. It's starting to happen in Philippi. But he's saying, listen, what you have in common together is these gospel realities that in Christ you have encouragement, you have comfort, you, you possess and you participate in this same spirit that's given to us in Christ. And then lastly, you can notice that he also says, if there's any affection and sympathy... I love how the author of Hebrews, one of the things that he'll say is, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who is tempted like us in every respect, yet without sin, so that we can draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in your time of need. Paul is saying, you know, believer, what you have in common with other believers the deep affection of your Savior. He loves you. He cares for you. He feels deeply for you in his heart. You have his affection and you have his sympathy. When you're experiencing hardship in life and you're going through seasons of sorrow and sadness, difficulty and discouragement, you have a Savior who walked this earth and can say to you, 
I know. And I care for you in this moment. Because I too have been through similar things. He says what you have in common amongst all of the differences of the people here in this room, the people back then in Philippi, is that you have encouragement in Christ, comfort from His love, participation in the Spirit, and you have the affection and sympathy of your Savior. Now one of the things I think Paul is encouraging us as we read this passage is to recognize your need for these things. You need encouragement this morning in Christ. And to recognize in your heart, you're you're not self-sufficient. You can't provide all the encouragement you need for yourself. You recognize you need that encouragement. You recognize that you need that comfort. You recognize you need that same spirit. You need the affection and sympathy of Christ. But you also recognize not only your need for that, but you recognize that you have those things in common with other believers. That even though there's differences here in this room that sometimes come up in conversation, I'm sure, where you go, man, didn't know they thought that, or didn't know they did this, or who knows whatever it is. You can say what we have in common are all of these gospel realities that Paul mentions here in this text. And it's not only just recognizing your need for these things, But so, rooting your heart in these gospel realities and recognizing that others participate in them with you, that it leads you, rooted in God's love for you, to love other people. Notice what Paul says, if you recognize that you have all these things in common with others, he says in verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. I love how Paul says here, listen, his deepest joy is rooted in the character of God and what God has done for us, for him in Christ. But you'll also notice that there's a portion of his joy that's somewhat contingent on, are the Philippians loving each other? Do they recognize their need for the gospel? Do they recognize that others need the gospel too? Rooted in that, are they, are they loving each other? Is there not only gospel humility, but is there relational harmony? Are they of one mind? Are they loving one another with the same love? And Paul says, when you are, it completes my joy. To go back to the analogy of the symphony all along that gospel humility creates, gospel humility is key for relational harmony. Uh, There was an orchestra that played in 1970, the Chicago Orchestra. Uh, played at Carnegie Hall, Bruckner's Ninth Symphony. And they played it in 1970, and when they played it as well as they did, it became one of the longest standing ovations in orchestral history. The people enjoyed it so much that they stood for 35 minutes and clapped. There was so much joy from hearing what they heard that they couldn't stop but clapping and acknowledging that what they just saw was amazing. And it only stopped when the assistant to the conductor had to come out, stuck, kind of speaking to the mic and say, sorry, buddy, he's got a plane to catch. We got to go. But they still remained clapping for a few minutes even after that. It brought them joy to hear the harmony that that orchestra could bring. And Paul says, Because of God's grace in your midst, I stand in joy. 
when I see that this humility has created this gospel harmony that's singing so loud from each of your hearts. Paul says, when that happens, it completes my joy and I stand in awe of God's grace among you and within you. And you'll notice that here, out of all these things, it's not a kind of unity that's at the expense of gospel truth. That, okay, let's just lay these things aside and then we can have unity. No, it's unity in this gospel truth. It's particular in this truth that we have unity together. And Paul wants to sit back and enjoy watching how gospel humility is creating this relational harmony amongst the Philippians back then and amongst us now together. That these are the gospel realities that we have in common with each other. If my first point was gospel humility, my second point is gospel humility. Only this time we're not going to focus on the gospel aspects of it. We're going to focus on the humility aspects of it. You'll know that Paul gives us a warning here in this section, a very strong warning in verse 3. After mentioning all of those things, he says in verse 3, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. And then he will say, look not only to your own interests. And so he's saying in some ways that the default posture of our hearts because of sin is to do things out of rivalry and conceit. The default posture of our hearts because of sin is to look only to our own interests and maybe to the interests of others as long as it serves our interests. It's fascinating that by the end of Philippians chapter 2, one of the things that Paul will say is this. When he's, ta he's talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples of humility, he says, everyone looks after their own interests. But not those of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying there's, there's innately and born within us because of sin, this selfish desire to make my kingdom all that I want and all that I pursue and all that I think about every moment. And that the gospel fundamentally realigns our hearts. But here the warning is do nothing out of rivalry. Now that word, really what it's getting at is self seeking. Do nothing out of seeking only for yourself. Even if it's at the expense of other people out of rivalry, this kind of competition. Maybe there's limited resources and I have to get mine before anybody else gets them. This competition that's going on. Or this comparison. Well, they're like this. I should have that. Or I have this, but they shouldn't have that. And, and Paul is saying there's this danger that creates disharmony within communities of rivalry, self-seeking. Some of you have heard the name of Bruce Walkie. He's an Old Testament scholar. And he, he summarizes the book of Proverbs with a proverb. I think it's very, very wise. He says, the fool seeks his own advantage at the expense of others. The wise seeks others' advantage at his own expense. 
But we often seek our own advantage at others' expense. And Paul here says, do nothing out of rivalry. Self-seeking. You'll notice also he goes on to mention the language of conceit. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Conceit is a, an exaggerated sense of self. I am so important, or I should be so important. It's one of the things that Martin Luther said during the Reformation of what sin did, was that sin makes us what he called curvy toss in say, curved in on ourselves. So all we think about on a consistent basis is me, myself, and I, and what I want. And then Paul mentions it's not looking after your, only your own interests. Listen, the way I've said it before is this that what our heart tends to do is to define our own kingdom according to our own selfish desires, and then we demand that it come now. For instance, I've shared this before. I have a very particular way of how I want my evening to look when I get home from work. And everyone's so thankful and... Um, you know, we have this wonderful meal in front of us that we're all going to enjoy and have a wonderful conversation around. And then uh, we're going to play together maybe for 15 minutes or so. And then, and then I'm going to have some quiet moments of reading a book. And everyone's going to go to bed with thankful hearts. And if you get in the way of that, let's just say a little frustration will spill over. Okay? Now that's just a silly, somewhat superficial example. But all of us say, okay, this morning when I wake up, this is how my day should go. Everything for me should go well. Nobody should get in my way. If they cause me trouble or someone else's needs come up and complicates my schedule, I'll, I'll ju I mean, just think about how often our thinking is just me, 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 rivalry, conceit, exaggerated sense of self, seeking after self, how often has that caused disruption and disharmony in your relationships? And for me, sadly, way too much. And Paul says we naturally have this, this innate selfishness in us that only the gospel can heal. Listen, one of the things that happened recently was there was the Philadelphia Orchestra was playing. And they were playing uh, Bruckner's Fifth Symphony, I believe, if I'm getting this right. And they were in the third movement of this symphony. There were, I think, two or 3,000 people there. The conductor is conducting everyone who's playing. It's beautiful, it's harmonious, and all of a sudden, cell phone. You ever had that happen? In the orchestra, cell phone goes off. So he tries to ignore it, and he keeps on conducting. About five minutes later, you know what goes off? Cell phone, again. So finally he gets through the, the third movement and he thinks like, okay, finally the cell phone is over. Whoever it is, they've turned it off. He's conducting. They're really getting to the crescendo, but it gets real quiet before it gets to that. And all of a sudden, in the most quiet moment of the orchestra, cell phone, number three. Of course, he's getting a little bit frustrated and agitated at this point. And he gets to the grand finale. What was it? cell phone. And so finally he just stops the whole orchestra. He turns around to the audience and he says, can you not be without your phone for one hour? This was in May of 2023 this year. And you saw everyone just kind of go, Ooh, checking their phones. 
And when he was talking to the media afterwards, he did say this. I found this uh, insightful. He said, I know we're trying to welcome a new audience to enjoy orchestral music, but everyone who comes needs to understand the power of being in the moment and experiencing it all together. And that means for a season, so everyone with you can hear that harmony, you have to put yourself on hold for a minute. And I think that's a good warning for us to say harmony is produced from our hearts. And we enjoy harmony in community when we are not self-seeking. In our relationships with our family, with our friends, with our classmates, with the people that we work with. But when that cell phone of selfishness goes off, it disrupts everything. And that's why Paul says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit and look not only to your own interests. But then he goes to the positive teaching in verse 3. He says, but in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Oh, how hard that can be. In humility, count others as more significant than yourself. So what is humility? We can say the word all day long and kind of assume that we know exactly what it means, but I think if you put all the material from Scripture together on humility, it's at least getting at this. It's thinking about yourself in an increasingly accurate way and a posture of heart that genuinely prioritizes pursuing the needs of others. Increasingly thinking of yourself in an accurate way and genuinely prioritizing pursuing the needs of others. Not just responding to their needs or reacting to their needs, but actually pursuing them. Where are the needs? How can I meet them? How can I serve you? In humility, count others as more significant than yourselves, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Increasingly knowing who you are. That's a big topic in our culture nowadays of who am I? What is my identity? And one of the things that scripture would say is, in humility you acknowledge that you are finite. You do not know all things. You don't, you don't have the answer to all things. You can't do everything. You don't have all the gifts in the world. You're limited. You're finite. And because of that, there should be humility. A willingness to listen, to learn, to know that others are finite as well, that they're going to have needs that maybe you can meet. You know that you're finite. But in humility, you also know that you're fallen and sinful, that you can be selfish, that you need the buckets of grace that only come from God through Jesus Christ, that we're finite and that we're fallen. And we know the specific ways that selfishness tends to grow in our lives, and we're humbled by it, that God himself would show us his love, that we're not only finite and fallen, but we're beloved by God himself. That he's shown us his grace in Christ. And not only that, it's also humble to acknowledge that God has, has given you gifts 
to serve other people. You increasingly know who you are. But then you genuinely, it's a posture of heart where you genuinely prioritize. Not you, but pursuing the needs of others. That's a definition here, I think, as Paul says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And you'll notice how he begins to describe what humility looks like and feels like as gospel humility is the key to relational harmony. The first way he says it is that we count others more significant than ourselves. We say, you have weight in my life. You are valuable. You're important. I want to care for you and love you well. You are significant. I don't come first. You come first. And notice the other description that he says. He says, look out for the needs of others, not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now I get this morning, that could feel rather overwhelming, right? So if I'm watching TV and this comes up, I got to do that. And then I see this in my community, I got to do that. And then I got to do this. Genuinely prioritizing, pursuing the need. Do you know how many needs are out there? Well, remember, God knows you're finite. So if you're married, start with your spouse. How do I consider my spouse more significant than myself? How do I make sure that I'm prioritizing and pursuing their needs above my own? Or kids? How do I make sure that they know that I consider them more significant than me? And that I prioritize and pursue their needs? And kids, you can think the same way in helping your parents. How can I let them know that they're significant to me, they're valuable to me, and I, I want to serve them in whatever ways I can as a kid in the house growing up, as a friend, as a classmate, as a roommate? How can I show the ones around me in concentric circles, you are significant to me, I care for you, I, I want to prioritize pursuing your needs, and so when I see them, I want to step up and say, how can I serve you? That's why I, one of my favorite stories in the gospel is James and John are talking to their mother. And they're basically saying, hey mom, could you have a conversation with Jesus for us? Why, yes, children, what do you want me to have a conversation with him about? Could you make sure that I get to sit at his right hand and he gets to sit at his left hand and we have really high status in the new kingdom? And you know what their mom says? Okay. So in Matthew chapter 20, Mom goes to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus. And he says, yes, what can I do for you? She's like, well, my sons would really like to be high in your kingdom. Can one sit at your right hand and your left? I mean, can you imagine that? Hey, Ma, ask Jesus a question for me. They want status so that other people serve them. And many of you know Jesus' response. He says, even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why Jesus, in the only place in the gospel where he describes his own heart, he says that he is gentle and humble. He genuinely prioritizes pursuing the needs of others. So that's what God calls us to, that when, when we have real gospel humility, it's key to relational harmony. 
There's actual music coming from your relationships because we're each not looking to our own interests, but in humility counting others as more significant than ourselves. Well, how do we grow in that? Here's ways that we might approach it. We could approach it by mere command. Be more humble. And so you wake up tomorrow morning, you're like, great. This morning I'm going to be more humble. I'm going to count others as more significant than myself, and I'm going to pursue prioritizing their needs. That often doesn't work. And I will say, nor is humility kind of the self-groveling where it's like, I know I'm not much. Um, I'm not really much. I, I don't have much to give, and I'm not really much of a person. Do you hear the, the kind of negative pride in that? It's still me, 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 me. That's why humility is increasingly knowing who you are and prioritizing and pursuing the needs of others. But command won't get you there. Nor criticism from others or self-criticism. I see some pride in your heart. You got a lot of room to grow in humility. Thank you. I'll make sure to grow in that area. Criticism alone will not get you to humility, nor will comparison. You know, you see so-and-so over there. They're so humble. If you could just be like them, that'd be really helpful. Watch and learn and do likewise. That won't necessarily get you there. These aren't, this is not an exhaustive list, but here are some steps. Here's the first one. Go to the cross. More accurately, go to the one who is hanging on the cross. That's why Paul will say as he follows up with this section, he will say Jesus who knew he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he was born in the likeness of our humanity and became a servant and humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death. Here is someone who is fully God who became fully man because he considered you significant. And because of our sin, my sin and yours, he knew that the only hope to shift our hearts away from pride and self-seeking and an exaggerated sense of ourselves, the only hope to heal that was to give us a new heart of humility which could only come by him dying on a cross. And so the first step is going to the cross or the one hanging on the cross. I love Jonathan Edwards in his book, Charity and Its Fruits. He has a fantastic chapter on humility. And he says one of the things that really humbles us is not just God's infinity, that he's so big and we're so small, but that he's infinitely lovely in his mercy that when you see how infinite he is, and yet the beauty that he came down and served us because of his mercy, that will begin to humble you. It's at the cross where you need to go. Not starting with command or criticism or comparison, but not only that, after the cross, it's, it's also you see that at the cross you're safe to confess how selfish you actually are. That's what, that's what C.S. Lewis says is the first step in becoming humble is confessing how prideful you actually are. I would go to the cross first, and then knowing the mercy of the cross, you know you're safe to confess Jesus 
just last night I was so selfish. I had this opportunity to serve my family in this way, and I chose to do this instead. And then this week, I had this opportunity here, but I chose this instead. All of it for me. Please root this out of me. And you'll notice that gospel humility is the key to relational harmony. The last thing is engage in community with other people. You go to the cross, you confess how selfish you actually are. And growing in humility means you surround yourself with people that you can get to know and to serve and to love and to care for and begin to put their needs even above your own. I think it's interesting, one of the, one of the small ways to show humility, C.S. Lewis says when you meet someone who's really humble at a party, um, he says they're not going to be that kind of like greasy, smarmy person. It's like, oh, shucks, I'm such a, such, I'm not a really important person. You know, not that. Liz always likes it when I do my little impersonations there. She's laughing. He says they're not going to be like that. You're going to walk away from that person thinking they really cared about me. They wanted to get to know me. You know why? Because they weren't thinking of themselves the whole time. C.S. Lewis says that's how you know you've been with a humble person. Some of you know the name Leonard Bernstein. I've used this uh, story before, but he was the uh, famous conductor for the New York Philharmonic. And he was asked in a TV interview, I'm going to end with this. He said, what's, what's the hardest instrument to play? And, I mean, he didn't miss it. He immediately stood up and he goes, I'll tell you the hardest instrument to play, second fiddle. He says, everybody wants to play first fiddle, the most important part, the most prestigious part, the part with most status and significance. And that's why it's so hard to find someone who can play second fiddle, and not just play second fiddle, but play it with enthusiasm. And he says, but notice this, without second fiddle, there's no harmony in the orchestra. So he said, we, we need more people who are excited about playing second fiddle. But he says, no one wants to play second fiddle. You know, it's interesting that Paul will say at the end of Philippians chapter 2, everyone seeks after their own interests. But then he says, not those of Jesus Christ. In other words, who wants to play second fiddle? Who wants to play the role of servant? And Paul is saying, if the gospel's really drilling into you, you should go, me? I will. I'll put me second. I'll put you first. Now, one of the questions that comes up too, I, I would say this when I was not a believer, like, yeah, well, I don't see this much in the church. I see a lot of more pride than anything else. Less humility. I usually say it with a lot of pride myself. And here's the thing. If you go to a fifth grade orchestra and they're playing Beethoven, let me just encourage you with this, and they're playing Beethoven and they're fifth graders, do you play do you blame Beethoven for their performance or them? All right? Let's say like they did good, but they have plenty of room for performance or for, you know, progress. You don't blame Beethoven. Listen, don't blame Jesus. Sometimes for the actions of the church. But Jesus, who is perfect in humility, does call the church to grow in that humility. A humility that's key to relational harmony and humility that increasingly, increasingly thinks accurately about who you are 
and genuinely prioritizes pursuing the needs of others. Where can you do that this week in a tangible, meaningful way in view of the gospel of Jesus Christ who humbled himself for you? Let's pray.